Hello and welcome to EM Talk. EM Talk is a podcast sponsored by Axon Education and the Texas EMS School, and we are devoted to diving into the real world of EMS and everything relative. We interview real EMS providers, real hospital providers, real patients, and get the real story on what's going on currently in the world of EMS and what we can do to make it better. Okay, so... Hello and welcome to a new episode of EM Talk. I want to make a change to how we start the episodes by opening with a call or a patient that I've experienced, something small or big that has stuck with me through the years. So that being said, I would love to be able to tell some of your stories out there. So of course we need to be HIPAA compliant and all of that. So if you want to send me a story, please, no names, no specific ages, date of births, locations, anything like that. But just send your stories to support, S-U-P-P-O-R-T, at axoneducation, A-X-O-N, education.com. Support at axoneducation.com. And uh, my staff will make sure it gets to me. So uh, staying in in that nature or in uh, this new format, I'm going to go ahead and start with a story about a wreck that I worked one time that turned out to be a medical. And that's not a unique thing. A lot of of traumas turn out to be medical related. And uh, so this one was pretty cool. I got dispatched to... to a wreck off of a highway near near where I was working at the time, trying to remember not to give locations. And um, when we got there, we saw a vehicle that had run off the road into a post, into a fence, and the vehicle was pretty, pretty messed up, good amount of damage, a little bit of intrusion. And I look and I can't see anybody sitting in the front seat, and so I go over to the vehicle and the the guy that was driving, he was in a ball in the front seat, just like, or in, in the uh, in the front compartment underneath the steering wheel. And he, you know, I opened the door and he's like, hey, and I'm, I was like, what the heck, man, what are you doing? And he's like, I got in a wreck. And I said, well, stay still for a second. Let us try to get you out of there safe. So we get him out, follow the spinal protocols, all that kind of good stuff and get him into the truck. And I'm like, do you remember why you wrecked or have any explanation for that? And he he says, no, I just I was not feeling too good and was driving to the hospital. And I was like, well, I guess you're going to get to go to the hospital one way or the other. So we put him on the cardiac monitor and we start looking around just to try to figure out anything's going on, getting vitals, all that. And I know that he has elevation in 2, 3, and AVF. And I was like, oh, my gosh, man. I didn't say that to the patient, but uh, it turns out this guy's having a, a STEMI. On top of that, he uh, proceeds to tell us that he has drank a large amount of alcohol over the past few hours to try to dull the pain that he said he was having at one point in the day. And uh, so that I cannot, I can't confirm what kind of uh, impact that had on the incident. But what it does go to show is just because it's a trauma, you still need to do your assessment. You still need to be thorough about that assessment because that guy ended up, his neck was broken, he had a STEMI, uh, he had all sorts of stuff going wrong for him that day. And really, a lot of that could have been overlooked if we had just said, okay, this is a simple trauma, let's package him and get out of here. And instead, we, we packaged and we did get out of there, but we took time to assess the situation and try to figure out how 
we could do what's best for our patient. Um, and that's not always how it goes, not even for myself. And so uh, just a little encouragement to be thorough out there. Okay, so it's EMS week. And so with me today, I have uh, one of our instructors here and uh, our curriculum coordinator. <laughs> and his name is Adam Wester. Adam, say hello to everybody. Hello, how are y'all doing? We're great. I always feel weird because there's not any kind of audience, you know, immediately here. So in my head, I try to make up uh, responses from that. So Adam and I have known each other for probably going on 10 years now. Um, and uh, he was in the field before me and uh, we went through the same program just at different times. And, um, you know, I would say that both of us are... are considered at least adequate at being paramedics, um, never had many complaints. And so, you know, that's that's hard to do in this field. Uh, I'm sure somebody's complained about us at some point, but it's it just goes to say that, hey, at least we're, we're trying here, we're trying hard. And so during EMS week, I thought uh, it would be a good idea for us to talk about where the industry is headed. And so we, we end up in EMS either two directions. We get this mindset that this is the way it's always been done, or we get way too ahead of ourselves and we're like, let's try whatever. You know, we'll just start trying stuff. And neither one of those is a healthy way to, to take care of somebody. So I want to start, one, by letting Adam tell you a little bit about, you know, where he's worked or, or what kind of environment he's worked in um, and and who he is a little bit. So Adam, um, where where have you, what kind of uh, environments have you worked EMS, like city, rural, what, where have you worked? So I've kind of done a whole lot of almost everything in EMS. Uh, I've worked urban EMS for quite a few years, um, for the majority of my career. Uh, I've worked county EMS services, and I've also worked frontier EMS services, and I've also worked as a paramedic in an ER, so I really, the only thing I haven't done is flown. Okay, so a lot of people don't know what frontier EMS means. Uh, I have worked for a frontier service, so I understand it, but just for reference, what, what qualifies as frontier EMS? So frontier EMS is essentially anything with less than 5,000 people in the county. Okay. So, a lot of places in the state of Texas probably come under that guideline, I would assume. Uh, quite a few counties do. Okay. All right. Well, so, um, how many kids you got? I've got two kids. Okay. And uh, your oldest is graduating from yep, high school. this week. That's crazy. And if you don't know Adam, Adam is not old, so uh, <laughs> he, uh, he's doing good here. He's, he's getting them out quick. Um, so that they can leave them alone and go do their own thing, which, for, for the record, that is not how Adam seems to feel about it. I think he's going to miss his kiddos. Um, but uh, Adam is, is a good, good buddy of mine, and so I'm happy to have him today, and I'm excited to talk about where our industry is headed. So one of the first things that I wanted to bring up is it's not necessarily a completely new concept for EMS, but it's something that's not regularly done right now, and that's pericardiocentesis. So have you ever seen that as a protocol in the field, anywhere you've worked? 
I have not. Uh, I've been doing this for, like I said, almost 10 years. Um, and that is not a procedure that I've seen in the protocols. I've heard of some specialized services being able to do it, such as flight services and stuff, but that's few and far between. Yeah, I, I too, like, I've I've always thought, well, it'd be a good thing for us to be able to do, but at the same time, it's kind of a, a scary responsibility to tell us, hey, you're going to stick a needle in the pericardial sac and yeah. see what happens. I mean, you've got to have some special resources there. You've got to have your ultrasound, somebody that knows how to read the ultrasound appropriately. <laughs> your patient can't be severely obese to where the ultrasound can't reach through the tissue. Right. And then you have to really have a physician that's willing to say, yes, I'm going to train my EMS providers to be able to do this and trust that they can do it appropriately in the field in the mo- in the back of a moving truck. Yeah, and so <clears throat> I think that's really what it comes down to is a lot of times, like, are, are we really willing to trust that this paramedic that has, you know, training but limited definitely compared to a physician do something that usually is only done in a very controlled environment and I guess the answer is yes um, uh, it is a protocol for some services I've <clears throat> I've had students come through that said that their service has a protocol for this um, which like you said also means that we have to have training in um, using a sonogram uh, or uh, there's a there's a mobile one that like actually attaches to your phone. Sonosite. There you go. There you go. And I've actually seen um, a, a company that uses that, and that is um, Community Volunteer Fire Department, I believe. Uh, Abilene Fire Department also uses something similar. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I think it's a useful skill. Um, I think again, like if if your skills are not where they should be, you could really make a, a pretty tragic mistake. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, cardiac tamponade, this would be something that in an emergency I could definitely see us needing the ability to do. It's, I think it's more something that your rural or your frontier EMS services would benefit from the most. Because, um, I mean, if you think about how long it would take to get a helicopter out to a patient from some of these locations, it could be 20, 30 minutes before a helicopter even gets on scene. That's true. So... That's in that time frame, true. that person can go into cardiac arrest from a cardiac tamponade. That's true. So you really have to think about where would the benefit be to the patient? Well, and I, I really, I can't think of a, a situation that isn't in a rural area where that would be a good idea. Because you're right, like, I, I remember many calls working in rural EMS where you know, there were, there were things that I know could be done that we don't have a protocol for and, and even training for, but they're not going to get that until, like, way down the road because the hospitals that can do it are, you know, an hour away from where we're at. So having that ability in that situation, you're right, it, it, cardiac tamponade could easily kill somebody. And if we have the ability to, to do something about it, I think that's, that's always going to be a good thing. But it hasn't been widely implemented yet. No. Um, it's been talked about for years. I think a lot of that is physician responsibility. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. A lot of physicians are already careful about what they will allow their paramedics and EMTs to do underneath their license. 
as medical directors, and so they don't want to add that much more to their liability insurance. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, even like intubation, sometimes medical directors are hesitant to allow for you know, paramedics to intubate, and that's considered like a thing we do. That's just one of the things we do now. Uh, but it really didn't become hugely popular and and uh, and common until like 2012 is when people really started to intubate all the time. Um, and then you know every year there's some incident that happens and they almost take it away from us. Yeah. <laughs> so I assume pericardiocentesis would be very similar. It'd be one of those things where every few years they'd be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't let people do that anymore. Um, but depends on uh, how many missed attempts they have. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's the risk of missing, I guess, is what we would say. Well, depends on, are you going to puncture a lung? Are you going to puncture the heart again? Yeah, <laughs> that could be bad. I mean, yeah. You already have blood going into the pericardium, or the pericardic sac, from the cardiac tamponade, mm -hmm. and so where's the hole in the heart already? And right. are we going to make that worse by missing and going into the heart muscle itself? And puncturing into a No, we're just going to let the blood back in the heart. Mm. <laughs> That's how that works. So, uh, no, no, I, I agree. It's a, it's a risky thing. I think it'll become more common um, just as the field advances. It's We're constantly upgrading in EMS, it seems like. Uh, but everything's cyclic or cyclic. 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 Yeah, one of those words. <laughs> Everything comes in a circle, and so, uh, you know, it'll phase in and out just like everything else does, I assume. Um, but, you know, one of those things that's that's on the board here for us to, to possibly start making regular, uh, which makes me think of um, field amputations. Field amputations have always been one of those things that if medical direction tells you to do it, you can do it. Now... I know about two people ever who have attempted to do field amputations, and I'm surprised that I know that many people. And right. it's just like, I don't know. It is se severely underrated for, like, the hype it gets. Yeah. Because <laughs> really and truly, if you think about the number of providers in the state that have been around long enough to even have that as an option to them, yeah. the number of those providers is significantly less that have actually done it. You oh, might, yeah, definitely. You might talk to, out of the 45,000 EMS providers in the state of Texas, you might find 200 that have done a field amputation. Which is, I mean, it probably 200 too many uh, in most cases. But, I mean, we're talking like a situation where, you know, li literally life over limb. We have to get them out of where they're at. It's usually some kind of entrapment situation. And so everybody always ask, all the students always ask me the same question, well, how do you cut through the bone? I don't really have a good answer for that. Uh, how would you cut through the bone? I would say most of the time the bone's already broken. That's probably true. But, I mean, I, I have to be really good but, at this to cut through where the bone is broken, though. Like, to get straight through that same spot. I mean, no one said a field amputation was supposed to be pretty. That's true, too. Nobody did say that. Ugh. Just the thought of it, I mean... It's not it, something I would ever want to do. No, no, it's kind of like a crike. Like, it's not really something I want to do. It's just something... I have the knowledge of how to do it. Yeah. I don't want to do it. I don't have but I 
legitimately don't have the knowledge of how to cut somebody's arm off. Me either. Um, Not something I was taught in school. Yeah, the fact that somebody would be like, yeah, cut it off, and I'd be like, all right, and then just sit there and try to figure out how to cut an arm off. But from what I understand, usually some kind of surgeon calls in and walks you through what you're supposed to do, probably in terminology that none of us would understand, too, because you've met those guys. They're Sometimes they're hard to communicate with. Sometimes. But anyways, that's just another one that's out there that I, I don't even consider on the list of, hey, this is becoming popular. I, I don't think it's becoming popular. Um, okay, so uh, here's one that I had that that's always coming up, and it's these arguments about what kind of pain meds to use. And so something that's become popular again, of course, is ketamine. Mm-hmm. And when I first became a medic, everybody was like, no, don't use ketamine, it'll kill them. Um, now we're back to ketamine, you give it for everything. So what's your thought on that? Why are, why are we back to that? Uh, well, ketamine, because it's a non-opioid. Um, okay. And so we are currently in an opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of medical directors have looked at it and said, well, here's a non-narcotic that we can give and it could possibly um, give the same amount of pain relief, if not just completely disassociate them for about 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. And it's not going to raise blood pressure very much, if any. It's not going to raise your heart rate, not going to lower your heart rate. So if you have a bleed of some kind in your brain on top of the rest of whatever we're giving the pain medicine for, it's not going to affect that. It's not going to increase your ICP. So there's a lot of positives to why medical directors are starting to go to ketamine. I do know quite a few physicians that are very much against it because it does disassociate and it impairs their ability to do their physical assessment. So there's pros and cons to it. Um, And it depends on which end of the spectrum you're on. Yeah, and I, I don't know that I, I have a side. I know that it's a, it's a common treatment now, and we're teaching students to do it. And so, you know, whereas, like, it wasn't even on my list of drug cards whenever I went through. Right. Because nobody wanted us to use it. Mm-hmm. So Morphine. Yeah, morphine, fentanyl. fentanyl. Fentanyl was, like, go-to drug. Demerol. Like, and Demerol, yeah, Demerol, jeez. I mean, given that medicine in about eight years. Yeah, <laughs> uh, fentanyl was a big one, and so fentanyl's still pretty popular because it's synthetic, and yeah. we can. It has less side effects than some of the other ones, but the problem is fentanyl is real popular, whether you need it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the medical industry as a whole has kind of been blamed for creating all these these drug addicts, and I disagree with that. I don't think we created drug addicts. I think addicts create themselves, but you know, we've we've kind of strayed away from that, or we try to find ways that aren't so harmful to administer some of these opiates, like uh, intranasal fentanyl is, is one of the ways that we're trying to combat that, or instead of using fentanyl or even ketamine, doing acetaminophen um, IV as well. So, which I've never had a whole lot of luck with as far as extreme pain reduction, but, you know, it, it probably depends on the dose and what you're using. If you start using stuff like... Tordol, for example. Right. Tordol is not going to completely take away the pain, but if you think about what a pain medicine's for, it's not to take away all the pain. 
right. to knock that edge off to where they can be somewhat comfortable. Yeah, it's manageable pain. It's manageable pain. Yeah, true. True, true. So what we've done in the past, and I'm guilty of this as well, is we want to get that skill, that pain scale to a zero Yeah. in the back of a truck because we're already bouncing down the road. We know we're going to create more pain with some of the stuff that we're doing to the patient. So we want to try and make them absolutely pain-free. And so we're medicating these patients to where they're not feeling any pain, and they're all happy, high as a kite, you know. Yeah, it's my favorite kind of patient. But happy. realistically, what we should be focusing on is pain reduction down to a manageable amount of pain. Right. So anywhere from a one to a four instead of a zero. Yeah. And I would agree. I would agree that we probably go overboard, or have, I mean, I'm not saying I do, but in general, the, the EMS community does, you know, it's zero to 100 real fast. And then you've got some places that their protocols are, if the patient's pain is above a five, you give a narcotic. Right. Well, and so the way that I always teach it is uh, pain, you know, pain is relevant, obviously. Um, if it, Even if the patient is not saying... Uh, you know, it's a 10, look at the injury, look at their vital signs, look at how they're responding to it. Because a lot of people, like, you know, there's a lot of people tell you, you know, it doesn't hurt at all, but they're just saying that. Mm -hmm. And really... Their vital signs, their heart rate's tacky, their blood pressure's elevated. Everything says this hurts really bad and they don't want to say it. So there's there's that side of it too. But uh, I think you're probably right. We probably just have, have gotten in the habit of trying to reduce to a zero instead of making it manageable. And, um, you know, there, there are other ways to do that. And maybe it comes down to maybe we need more protocols that teach us to kind of titrate for pain as opposed to here's your weight-based dose, you should get this much. You know, maybe it's step-up fashion is, is where we should be headed with pain management. But Well, it, I've seen variations of that okay. in the field. Um, one of the services I used to work for, it was... Here's your starting loading dose. It was 50 mics of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter what the weight was of the patient unless they were extremely small. Right. Your loading dose was 50. You would go up by 25 every 5 to 10 minutes. Okay. Until their pain was manageable. Okay. And it worked. It worked very well. I like um, that. For those trauma patients. But for, you know, your little old lady grandma that is you know, maybe 95 pounds. Yeah. You would probably want to start at about 25 mics and work your way up. Right. And that comes, I guess that comes down to not being, not being a cookbook medic, not just, you know, being willing to say, okay, this is what makes more sense. Critical thinking. And to go along with that critical thinking is also, you have to think about, okay, does this person have any type of kidney disease or anything that could prevent them from metabolizing this medicine I'm about to give them? Yeah. And definitely. If so, you probably want to cut your dose in half completely. Well, and we we do seem to to forget some of that. Uh, I've seen it all, uh, pretty often where a medic will not even ask those relative questions before they start giving a drug, and I'm like, that's like the first thing you learn. The five rights. Like, yep. let's let's ask some questions before we just start dealing out drugs. And 
Um, I used to have the nickname at one of the places I worked of Candyman uh, because I was not afraid to give pain meds to people. And it wasn't that I was just like, oh, yay, I get to use drugs. It was just more like I empathized with people and I didn't like seeing people in pain. And if there's something you can do about it, you do it. Uh, But as I've grown uh, in my knowledge, I don't think that way as much. So, I think we could do a whole podcast episode just out of pain meds, probably. But, moving on with things that are, are happening in our industry that are changing, um, mobile ECMO units. Um, so, this is something that I've heard of, I have not seen. Um, the last I heard was somewhere in the DFW or Houston area, they were wanting to get a mobile ECMO unit started. Um and the most I've really heard of it is through gyms. Yeah, and I, I did read that article on gyms, and uh, it's it's hard because it has to be a specialized unit. Like they're not, mm-hmm. you can't just kind of like a mobile stroke unit. Yeah, you can't just be like, hey, every ambulance you get an ECMO now. Um, that's pretty dangerous, you know, because it's it's doing the work for the heart and the lungs. It's filtering everything back and forth. It's there's a lot to it that you could really screw up if you don't know what you're doing. Um, so, what are weigh in on that? What are the benefits to to having even if we just had one per per service? What what would be the benefit of that? Um, honestly, unless you were in a city that the ECMO was available. So where we're currently located here in Abilene. Um, we don't have ECMO capability at, at any, any of the, the hospitals. hospitals. Right, right. So it wouldn't make sense to have a vehicle dedicated for ECMO. Yeah, because they can't continue the treatment. Right. So if we were going to, if we were in Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso, any of those places, it would make sense because they can do ECMO at some of those facilities. Um, but you would only really need one. Yeah, I mean, I can't see it being a regular <laughs> thing where I'm like, you know what, time to put this patient on ECMO. Uh, it just... COVID did kind of increase the number of patients that were on ECMO that were getting transferred. Right. But that's really the only thing in the last 10 years that has increased ECMO transports is these COVID patients that are having a really, really hard time recovering they get put on ECMO and they need to transfer to a higher or a long-term care facility right right that's really the only type of patient really that is struggling to find a transport yeah and I mean like you said if the, the hard part is is keeping them alive from one facility to the next to get the ECMO and then mm-hmm have a unit having that capability and knowing how to utilize it because that's I mean that's advanced specialty training like there's the you can't I could not jump in and be like all right I'm gonna set this up now yeah I don't have my critical care and there's a whole lot of stuff that these patients are on that I wouldn't even know what the first thing I was looking at (laughs) yeah no I feel the same way about it I definitely feel the same way a heart and lung bypass is not not something I expected to be a part of my curriculum ever um, or of my scope of practice. 
So ECMO's coming in. Um, something that has been happening, but uh, still one of those where it's like a specialty thing is, like you said, mobile stroke units, CT in the back of an ambulance, and then yeah. that CT gets transmitted to uh, a neurologist and they interpret it, and all that really does is, I think, and I could be wrong, it, what it would provide is for these places where a stroke facility is a long ways away, we could go ahead and start advanced level treatment for that patient. So, yeah. I mean, in theory, yes. Um, here in Texas, how many stroke units do we have? Ooh, I don't know. Did South become one since North is? Um, well, South was already a stroke center. Okay. Previous to different contracts being made. Um, but... They're not a high enough stroke facility to warrant us, the EMS service to even have a stroke unit. So, like, if you had a stroke unit, it's not like that's where you would want to go anyways. Right. You'd want to go to, a, a like, a number, a number one or something like yeah. that. Somewhere like, I guess, uh, Wichita Falls has, has a pretty high-level stroke facility. Yeah. Somewhere that there's a neurologist on 24-7. Right, right. Okay. Okay. That's I in the hospital that. 24-7. Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, who's who are you calling in for direction to interpret that? Right. And all that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes so, sense. So, I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves me correctly, there's one down around the Houston area, and there's one, I think, in Austin, Travis County. Not a lot of places. Um, <laughs> that there's actually a mobile stroke unit. It's crazy. Have you seen what those units look like? I've seen pictures. I've never been inside of one. Oh, me neither. I've never um, been in one. It's pretty impressive how they can yeah. put a CT machine inside of an ambulance. However, I've also heard comments from people that work for said departments that have one that those units don't even get called to the actual strokes because the EMD system doesn't recognize, hey, there's this mobile stroke unit sitting in the middle of town that can go anywhere, and instead they just dispatch the closest unit. Closest unit's like, oh hey, yeah, stroke alert. So money well spent. Yeah. Because, you know, CT scan in the back of an ambulance probably pretty cheap, I would think. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so cheap. It's, I mean, it's it's one of those things, it's like, they're always thinking of what, what's the next thing we could make convenient. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's where we, we come to on that. But I can see where it could have some value in the right situations. It's just, you know, how how accurate am I going to do this? How how accurate can something? And obviously, the truck wouldn't be moving during this. No. But it's just the truck has to sit still. Yeah. For the ten. And minutes. it's being transported all the time, so there's no telling what kind of machinery inside of that is bumping loose and mm -hmm. getting screwed up. So How often are the PMIs being done on it? Exactly, exactly. It's just there's a lot to it, and I'm sure it's manageable, and I'm sure there's a philosophy behind it that I'm just, you know, I'm not up to date on, but it is something that's becoming hopefully a little more common, and, and I hope we find a, a good use for it. Uh, let's see. The other one that I wanted to talk about was the Sam Junctional Tourniquet. And you're a big fan of that, right? Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> so explain it. You were telling me about it. Explain why you don't like it. <laughs> so 
the Sam Junctional Tourniquet, to me, is more cumbersome and time-consuming than just wound packing. Uh, to me, wound packing, you can get essentially kind of the same result, because it's going to control the bleeding about the same. Right. Um, than it is for actually trying to put that thing on. It's almost not worth it. And so, have you ever had a protocol for one? I have. Um, I've never used one in the field. Okay. Just trained on them. And it's very hard to get the tourniquet tight enough to actually stop the bleeding. And that, that was my thought on it, is like, how hard do I have to yank this thing down in order for and it to actually do anything? If you don't get it in the right spot, then it's going to be pointless anyway. Right. Right. I feel like I'd be more likely to break something else trying to tighten it enough to get it to do what it's there for. Which I guess at the end of the day, like if it stops the bleed and they don't die, then sure that that's worth it. But you know, Sam is always coming out with with what I think is a lot of good products. They have a lot of great products. So I That's just one of them that I'm not a huge fan of. Can it work? Yes. Is it a little bit more time consuming than wound packing and getting to a trauma facility? Sometimes. <laughs> I would say in most situations it probably is. But again, you come back to the the concept of location. You know, it all is mm-hmm. how close are you to a trauma facility. Yeah. And in that instance, you know, if you're far away, I could definitely see something like that being a value because mm-hmm. wound packing will work for a, a shorter amount of time than that would if you did it right, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyways, it's... It's another one of those skills, though, that's becoming more and more common. It's one of those things that we're actually teaching now, and we don't have to, you know, they don't really learn how to utilize that yet. It's not common enough for that. Right. But I, I mean, can we're see just that barely changing. getting cat tourniquets or SWAT tourniquets put on trucks. Yeah, which so. is crazy because those have been around for a while. Yeah. Um, so, uh, for those of you that don't know what that is, then you have not seen YouTube in the last 10 years. Um, so what else? Can you think of, of something that you've heard rumor of or, or whatever that's coming down the pipeline? Um, I have heard of some things over the last few years, which kind of goes back to the whole innovation thing of physicians not wanting people to, not wanting paramedics, specifically to RSI. Okay. Um, it's only been brought up a few times around me with certain physicians and the concept behind it is well how do you know that that person actually needed to be RSI or DSI it's a fair question yeah and the only ones that the question has come up on have been medical patients that we've DSI Okay. Instead of trauma. Because trauma, they're more than happy to have us DSI trauma patients so they don't remember what is broken on them at the end of the day. Um, but for medical patients, when you have a respiratory distress patient that is starting to fail and you don't want them to stop breathing on you, what's your next option? You DSI them. Exactly. And some physicians don't necessarily care for that. Which is a shame, because it's, this is just my opinion, this is not 
heard from any physician this whole or anything. Podcast is just our opinions. But to be fair. I, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> um, I think it comes down to a little bit of money um, issue because physicians get paid a whole lot of money to innovate somebody. Um, and yeah, when can bill it out. When we do a procedure like that, some might feel that we're taking money out of their pocket. Man, I really hope there's not physicians out there that are thinking that way, though. But I, I'm sure you're right. It's just, man, that's a rough, rough reasoning, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, it's, you're right. It's been argued for a while, you know, whether or not we should be RSIing, DSIing. And some states don't allow you to. I mean, there's, right. like, California, California you can't RSI. New Mexico is just now getting uh, state protocols exemptions for DSI and RSI in New Mexico. And I've seen lots of situations where RSI is, is valuable. Mm-hmm. And most of them are not trauma-related. Most of them are medical. Right. And until you've been in that moment where you're watching somebody's respiratory drive shut down completely, and you're like, uh, I can either wait till they die and intubate them, or I can do this myself, and it's, hard to, it's hard to have a real opinion on it. And uh, you and I have a mutual friend, who I won't say the name of on here, but... He loves to RSI and, like, was well-known for just RSIing like a crazy person. But I've never heard anybody say that he did it unnecessarily either. Right. You know, it just, he's good at recognizing and he's he's aggressive with it, which is different. Um, and then, of course, DSI. DSI is, is a newer concept to the EMS community. Right. It's not brand new, but it's something that we've started to implement as well. Uh, and which I think is, is valuable. So it shows that we're not just, you know, following a little cookbook and saying, okay, RSI is what I know how to do. That's what I'm going to do. Sometimes right. we make a valid decision based on their condition that we want to delay that process a little bit. So Make sure they have plenty of oxygen versus that trauma innovation. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the argument we would make it as, as EMS moves forward is, okay, we hear your complaint about we're RSIing medical patients and, well, here's DSI so that we can control that situation a little better. But, I mean, it comes back to something that I tell the students all the time is CPAP is one of your best friends. If a patient is in the right condition, you know, alert-oriented, all that, CPAP can do a lot to keep you from having to get to the RSI or DSI point. But it's not always going to work. There's not one given thing that's just always going to work. I mean, I've given, I don't know how many CPAPs with inline nebs and different epi, uh, racemic epi and stuff like that with it to try and open airways before with a high degree of success. But there's still those patients that sometimes it's a little too late when you get to them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I recall a patient once. I was riding in the back of the, the truck. We're on the way to the hospital. When we picked her up, she was breathing. She was talking. And all of a sudden, in the back of the ambulance, I'm looking at her, and she's starting to kind of just stare off into space, and her breathing's getting slower. And boom, she killed over. I mean, just like legit heart stopped everything. Yeah. And, you know, I start working her, all this. Of course, we get to the ER, and the first thing is, no IV. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, come on now. <laughs> I'm the only person in the back of the truck, and they coded on me on the way here. I did not have time to get an IV in between compressions. But I I, uh, I later called the hospital. I was like, hey, what what happened there? Because I want to make sure I didn't miss something. They're like, you didn't miss anything. They had, a, they had an embolism. 
You know, uh, there was absolutely no way for you to catch it. There's nothing you could do about it. Um, it just is what it is. But what that comes, the point of that is, is there are a lot of patients like that that go from like nothing to, oh no, I'm circling the drain. That if we didn't have the ability to do some of the things that we're doing, and if we didn't have these people coming up with these new treatments and and trying to teach us and help and trust us, then there's there would be more people that didn't make it as opposed to those that do. Yeah. So I think uh, you know EMS is is so young. There's there's just always going to be something changing about what we're doing. Yeah, and I mean we have people that are probably a lot smarter than you and I. Oh, I'm coming up with different plans for the future of EMS, and if those listening don't know, you can go visit the National Highway Transportation Safety Board's website and view the 2050 EMS agenda, mm-hmm. and that'll give you kind of a groundwork of where the stakeholders want to see EMS by 2050. Which seems like a long ways away, but... Realistically, it's not that far off, and it's, no. it means that we're going to have to start tri- trial running and beta testing all these things that people want to see happen, which means that most of the listeners we have are going to have to be those test dummies that have to go out there and trial run this stuff. I mean, if you think about the the previous version of that was the EMS Agenda 2030, mm-hmm. I believe is what it was. And or 2020, I think it was 2020. 2020, yeah. Um, and you and I, we got to live some of those trials. Oh yeah, definitely. Really and truly, we did. And it's interesting how we've kind of come full circle on a few things, yeah. different medications and things like that that they used to do uh, 15, 20 years ago. Right. Like dual sequential defibrillation. Yeah. Which that's I, super. Cool. I had heard about it, and then they started implementing it about five, six years ago, where I worked at the time, mm-hmm. and finally got to do one on somebody. Was it successful? It was not. <laughs> well, it's okay. It's not going to work but every time. that was also because prior to us doing this, he'd gone into torsades, and we didn't actually give him some mag to fix that. So... Well, can't catch everything. No. So. And it was just one of those things where we were like, uh, should we push it? Because he'd already got out of it. It's like, right, yeah. do, do we push the mag? Do we not push the mag? Yeah, and if and that, that kind of change in the body, it's hard yeah. to measure. So that one case we didn't get back, but I have seen it work on other patients that That's have cool. just been in ventricular tachycardia so, or V-fit. That's pretty cool. I've actually never gotten to do the dual sequential shock, but uh, explaining it is really fun because it sounds yeah. like crazy. It's like, hey, you know what? 360 wasn't enough. Let's mm-hmm. just double it. Double everything. Yep. You know, let's quadruple IVs. I will say that the jerk off of that is a little bit more violent on your patient. I can imagine so. So you might want to just be a little cognizant <laughs> of that if you're doing it. Anybody that's done CPR, there are things about it that you always remember. And it's uh, what it feels like the first time the, rig, the ribs crack. What it feels, or what it sounds like. Uh, the smell of doing CPR. And uh, another one of those things is the way the body moves when you when you give it a little jolt. And um, it's the one thing that movies come close to getting right about cardiac arrest is that they do jolt, but in the movies they like 
rise up by levitate off the bed or something like and half the time they're shocking a systole in the movies so uh, that always cracks me up well so um kind of coming to a conclusion here for for this episode and coming to the end of ems week uh, i think last time i ever talked about ems week my big thing was you know we don't do this job to get recognition and of course I'm on the education side more than anything now and um, I try to teach students this you know you're you're not going to be everybody's favorite hero from being a paramedic it's or an EMT it's just not not how it's going to work and the the thing about that is is we have to be okay with that they they gave us EMS week but they stacked a bunch of other things on top of EMS week to kind of make it less significant for us See, it's also police yeah mm-hmm. and and that's fine you know right now police are less popular than they were a few years ago and so right now we get a little bit of recognition but none of that really matters the point is is in EMS week what I really see it as is a time to reflect on why we have EMS why we do it um, why students come to us to try to become EMTs and paramedics and and it really just comes down to do we care about people or not and Adam and I have both been in this field long enough to see people that don't care and to see people that do care and, uh, you know, I, I had a podcast episode once with uh, Tracy Dean. Um, and if you want an example of somebody that did this because they cared, it's it's Tracy. Um, and, uh, and it was an awesome experience to have him on here. If you haven't ever listened to that episode, uh, it's called Helicopter EMS. So go back and listen to that. But people like that, and I would like to say, you know, Adam and I fall into a category of people that care. Um, that's that's what EMS Week is truly about. It's not about honoring us. It's about reminding us why we're doing this. And so I hope that EMS Week 2022 has been that for for all of you EMS personnel out there. Uh, maybe you got some cookies or something. Maybe you didn't. But at least you got a reminder of, hey, this is an important job, and I'm doing this job for a reason. And I hope that all these advancements that we see make it easier for you to do your job and make it to where we can help more people and that's really what those advancements are about and uh, again i want to reiterate that adam and i are are verbalizing opinions that's all they are just opinions we're not out there fact checking all these possible upcoming treatments you know we're we're speaking truth and knowledge from what we can understand about it but at the end of the day, how we feel about it is, is just our opinion. So uh, feel free to, to have your own opinion and not worry about what mine or his opinion was. And that's just fine. That's not going to hurt our feelings one little bit. So anyways, we'd love to hear from you guys. So make sure that you uh, submit some stories to support at axoneducation.com. Uh, if you're looking for a place to do EMT or paramedic or uh, just kind of wanting to ask some questions about it, make sure you reach out to us. And I guess uh, for now, we'll say thanks, Adam, and I'm sure we'll have you on again. I appreciate y'all having me on. Well, we'll see y'all next time on EM Talk.